Every single time he writes a character into a story, he loses that character a little bit. And, and so I wonder if he's almost worried about writing so much about these traumas because then he would lose that. And he's like, no, that's mine. That doesn't belong to other people. I don't want to lose that to my literature. Hi, everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Sarah about Nabokov's autobiography, Speak Memory. Plus, at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just for fun writing prompt that will hopefully help you notice the small bits of beauty that surround you. Today's quote is also by Nabokov, like I said in that earlier recording. He's, he has a lot to say about writing and reading and the process of writing and the goals of a writer. He once wrote, We all have such fateful objects. It may be a recurrent landscape in one case, a number in another, carefully chosen by the gods to attract events of specific significance for us. Here shall John always stumble there shall Jane's heart always break. I love this a lot because his book, Speak Memory, is kind of a museum of these objects that he's collected and imbued so much emotional and psychological significance into. A toy, a butterfly, a landscape, a color, a number. Most of the pleasure I get from this book is the, his passion for these very otherwise mundane and banal objects but he cherishes them, and he polishes them, and he holds them up to the light for us. And this kind of passion helps us see the mundane objects that surround us in a totally new light. So as you're writing on your own, as you're beginning your own writing projects, or as you're revising, think about what objects, mundane, silly, otherwise insignificant objects, mean a lot to you. And if you can shine light on them in the same way that Nabokov does, and raise them to the level of something sacred, something like Nabokov says, carefully chosen by the gods, right? A whole life can be constellated by these objects, and they can really help ground a lot of the emotions or ideas or narratives or plots of the stories and essays and poems that you're writing. And to see some more examples of how Nabokov does this and many other amazing things in this book, let's go into that chat with me and Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hello. How are Hi. you? Hi. Well, um, so how are things? Good. Thank you for being willing to do this. I thought what I would say first is a couple things. I like this book so much, but it's probably not a secret to you that I don't really have very deep or intellectual stuff to say about it. It's mostly just like I was reviewing the end for in preparation for our chat today and there's just so much that I thought, oh, I want to read that. And oh, I want to read that. And oh, I want to read that because it's just so beautiful. So much of it is so lovely and so beautiful. So I'm trying to figure out how we can have this conversation in a way that isn't just a reading of the book, because I yes, think it's like okay. such a beautiful book. But I, I will tell you it's a couple things we can maybe hit or maybe not if you have other things that you'd rather hit. I think maybe I'd like, like to talk about butterflies. Also, 
a question came up in the uh, Learning Suite Digital Dialogues about people were talking about memory and writing about memory, and, and uh, a student said that they that they've always struggled with writing traumatic memories, and that this book has kind of taught them a lot about that. So, I'd love to have your thoughts about this. Like, why Nabokov spends so much time talking about non-traumatic memories, memories of parks and butterflies and trees and stuff when clearly his life, I mean, his father was assassinated and his brother died in a concentration camp. I don't know. I thought we could talk about writing about good memories versus traumatic ones. Also, I would love to talk about near the end of the book, he starts addressing directly his wife. He starts saying you. And I just love that. I love what that does to me as a reader. So I thought we could talk about that. And, and interspersed in here, there's a scene or two that I really love and would like to read. So that's kind of the things I, I'm not necessarily hoping to cover, but some of the stuff we could cover if you want. Uh, maybe the first thing I'll ask you is what your favorite part of this book is and why it's your favorite part. Oh, goodness. So I actually ended up reading this book very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> not not too quickly to the point where I can enjoy it. Yeah. But I have the entire image of the book in my head. And it's just all well, of it's it. one thing, yeah. <laughs> it's like how to choose one thing because all of it is so mixed into itself that it's hard to choose one part without talking about how, oh, yeah, but that affects how I feel about this part. And so maybe that's my favorite part. That's a um, great thing to say. And I know I've asked you a question that you haven't answered yet, and I do want to hear your answer. But your that little prologue to your answer has inspired Maybe we could add onto our menu of topics for our conversation. And you, we can go to this whenever you want to. This also came up on Learning Suite. He blatantly states that he does not believe in time. And his chronology, the way that he narrates his life, isn't necessarily chronological. It kind of is. He starts as a kid, and by the time the book is over, he's married and he has a kid. But he there are no clear signposts and then I turned 10 and then I turned 15. You know, it's very, as you say, it does become the reading experience. I think you're absolutely right. becomes monolithic. Like we get his life as this kind of one thing and we go in and out of it. And it's not a series of delineated structured bits. So that's an interesting way to structure a book. I thought, and maybe, you know, we could chat about that if you want to, but yeah. Do you have any like favorite underlined parts or, favorite passages or favorite sentences that you kind of swooned over? So many. <laughs> I know it's um, hard to narrow it down. Yeah. And maybe this is a morbid part to like, but there's, there's a part on page 248 where, where he's talking, he, he describes people a lot. I feel uh -huh. um, that a lot of this novel, he, instead of, like you said, chronologically, he kind of bases it off of a setting or a person or an yeah. event. And he, he's talking about all these other people that are around him. And he says, many young people were always around, brown-limbed, braceleted, young beauties, a well-known painter called Soren, actors, a male ballet dancer, merry white army officers, some of whom were to die quite soon. And what, with beach parties, blanket parties, bonfires, a moon-spinkled sea, and a fair supply, a fair supply of Crimean Muscat Lunnel, 
and and of course that goes on but the the phrase in there that i really kind of focused on was merry white army officers some of whom were to die quite soon it's just like in the middle of this really happy scene he has to put in this reality check of where it's going to end and yeah. i don't i don't know why i liked this so much but it was almost um kind of like you were saying it kind of completed this spiral of his narration yeah i think spiral is a great word he'll do stuff like that from time to time he does it throughout it's can i find another example because he'll start talking about his mom and then he'll start talking about how she dies and (laughs) let's okay this is so good it's so good that you went here because i would never would have got here on my own and i think it's a really important concept So what could we call this? Foreshadowing? I mean, it's not really foreshadowing because we all know what he means. They were to die soon in the war. So it's not like a a hint of a mystery. It's not like building suspense. So what would you say is the purpose of this as a writer? Why would you... I mean, it's very heartbreaking in the moment to read this. You're absolutely right. When When you get to that chunk of the sentence, your heart kind of skips a beat and you feel this pang of really brief but intense grief. So it doesn't. It definitely serves that purpose. But, and again, these are questions that I myself, I'm not sure how I would answer. But thinking about this book as writers, we're all aspiring writers. What is the strategy behind a move like that? Why would you want to pepper throughout your narrative of your life certain brief flash forwards to you know death or demise or chaos or tragedy, and then go right back to this peaceful scene in the park? Why do you think he's doing that? Well, I think when we, I think it's because he wants to create this sensation of remembering. Okay. And so when you're remembering back to an instance in your life, you, you don't just think of, oh, I remember exactly how this felt when it started, which you lose when you explain something chronologically. But when he adds in some of which were to die soon, it, it adds in what he's always thinking in the back of his head when he's reliving that moment. He knows the end because he's already lived it. He's so making it a memory. The book is called Speak Memory, and it's a kind of extended... The way I read this book is that it's a kind of extended elegy for this childhood. We all... All of our ch- childhoods are lost. Yours is lost to you, and mine is lost to me. But his is lost to him in a different way. I mean, I can't speak for you but I'm you know, making maybe false assumptions, but maybe not, because he was exiled from Russia. So he couldn't even go to the places of his childhood. And many of the people he was exiled from and many of the people died. So he's kind of double removed from his childhood. So he sees the project of this book as this regaining of lost time or the search for what has been doubly lost. And what is the plot of this book? Well, it's not, it is, and then I grew up and then I met Colette on the beach and then I met this other person and then I had a son. That's one plot, but I think the real plot is, as you say, the act of trying to salvage memory. So it's the plot of this. It's not like the plot isn't Gandalf versus Balrog or Hobbits versus what's, you know, Sauron or whoever. The plot is human versus time or human versus aging or human versus exile. And I love what you say that these little flash forwards to the catastrophes that he knows will come down the road, help the reader remember, oh yeah, this is a book about memory. You're absolutely right. This is now a long-winded, just like yay to your answer. But when we remember, we don't relive it as it was then. We relive it knowing what we know now. So it's kind of like the the us then, 
then and then interweaving it with the, the digits of the other hand, the us now knowing what we know. So it's like a double layer. And that's something we can f- think about doing as we go forward writing about our own memories, I think. You don't just write it with the mindset that you had at the time. I mean, it definitely ties into how he explains, because there's a chapter, I forget exactly which one, where he's talking about how time is like a spiral. Yeah. He goes on this. And it was at that moment where I finally clued in. I'm like, oh, that's why he wrote the book the way that he did. <laughs> okay, that's great. So it, it, it has this intentionally, yeah, what other better word is there for it than spiral? It's a wonderful, this isn't exactly the moment that you're talking about, but if you go to chapter 15, this is page 296. Maybe this is a slight tangent. It's semi-related to what you just said. It's just a glimpse into the mind, the mind of this author. This is the paragraph on page 296 that starts whenever. Whenever I start thinking of my love for a person, I am in the habit of immediately drawing radii from my love from my heart, from the tender nucleus of a personal matter to monstrously remote points of the universe. Something impels me to measure the consciousness of my love against such unimaginable and incalculable things as the behavior of nebulae, the dreadful pitfalls of eternity, the unacknowledgeable beyond the unknown, the helplessness, the cold, the sickening involutions and interpenetrations of space and time. It is a pernicious habit, but I can do nothing about it. I find this so moving. I mean, it's kind of like a weird math brain kind of move, but it's so heartful and so heartfelt as well. I really love that. So yeah, he, he has many, many of these moments, very beautiful, peaceful moments in parks, looking at healthy young people that, he, that the narrator, the writer now knows will die. There's a section where he talks about his brother. Oh, um, oh I found that section heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking he announces in this kind of like semi offhand way that his brother died in a concentration camp. This is on page 258. So he does talk about his brother for a few pages. He, so on page 256, he says, I had two brothers, Sergei and Kirill. And he says that Kirill is the, so on page 257, he says, for various reasons, I find it inordinately hard to speak about my other brother. He talks about him for a few paragraphs. We only got, we, the only game we both liked was tennis we met again in the 1930s, so they weren't particularly close. And then, yeah, about two-thirds down, page 258, my bleakest recollection. So, okay, so let me just pause and say, I'm going to read this. And then my question is, and again, this is a question that could have five very good, correct, contradictory answers. You know, I'm not exactly sure what, what, what I would say. The question is, why doesn't he spend more time writing about the traumas of his life like the death of his brother, the assassination of his father. His, his brother dying in a concentration camp gets half a paragraph. So that's a very conspicuous choice. I'm wondering why. So he says, my bleakest recollections are associated with Paris and the relief of leaving it was overwhelming, but I am sorry he had to stutter his astonishment to an indifferent concierge. I know little of his life during the war. At one time, he was employed as translator at an office in Berlin. A frank and fearless man, he criticized the regime in front of colleagues who denounced him. He was arrested, accused of being a British spy, and sent to a Hamburg concentration camp where he died of inanition on January 10, 1945. It is one of those lives that hopelessly claim a belated something, compassion, understanding, no matter what. 
which the mere recognition of such a want can neither replace nor redeem. And then there's a section break, and section three of this chapter, chapter 13, begins, the beginning of my first term in Cambridge was inauspicious. He talks about the October weather, his first semester at university. So I think, well, wait, there's, there's a whole book in that little bit about your brother. What do you think, Sarah? What, what's going on here? Well, I, I think about, and maybe this is a dramatic shift, but before his chapter about Mademoiselle, yeah. He he talks about how every single time he writes a character into a story, he loses that character a little bit. Oh, I remember this. Yeah, how great. Oh, wow, this is so smart. Keep going. And and so I wonder if he's almost worried about writing so much about these traumas because then he would lose that. And he's like, no, that's mine. That doesn't belong to other people. I don't want to lose that. This is such a smart thing to say. One of my favorite parts of this, aspects of this book is he, he probably does this more in the earlier sections than the later. He'll be like, yeah, I have loaned. So he'll talk about an apartment where he used to live. And he'll say like, I loaned that apartment to various characters in my novels throughout the yes. years, or, or I loaned my clothes to that character, or, you know, certain like my pencil or something. I think you're absolutely right. This never occurred to me, but, but I imagine that if you distribute the facts of your life this way to fictional characters, it can feel you're absolutely right. Like they're not yours anymore. They get so intermingled with the fiction that they don't feel real anymore. Well, they and become the property of your readers. Yeah, yeah. And there are some things that you just are too precious or too... Not that it would be too difficult to confront this. I mean, maybe that's one reason. But absolutely, you must be right. Another reason is that he doesn't want this to be public. Mm-hmm. It's not public property. This memory is not public property. It's like, you can't have my pain. That's mine. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any, if, if you, yeah, what would you say to a person or to yourself if you asked yourself, like, how can you apply this to yourself? Do you find certain memories off limits or do you find it easier to write about certain memories than others? Definitely. It's, it's funny because as I've kind of tried to explore what I want to write and how I want to write, yeah. um, I personally think my husband and I have the cutest little love story ever. A lot of me wants to share that with the world, but at the same time, I'm like, well, there's, there's no way I can write that. That will give it justice. I don't know. It's like, (laughs) yeah, it's, is that, that's not really something to share with other people. That's, that's for me and my husband. Yeah. People can know about how we met and like how cute and awkward we are, but they, I don't have to create a romance and, adapt like make one character him and one character be or i I don't have to sit there and try to write previous crushes into (laughs) yeah yeah the story especially if it's a fiction anyway i think that's great and nabokov it seems to be right in line with nabokov because we don't ever learn how he and his wife meet really Mm -mm. or we we're not given the narrative of their courtship suddenly yeah let's dive right into that suddenly on page so we're getting like Oh, he goes to Cambridge and yep, there's a war and horribly his brother dies in a concentration camp. And and yeah, he's into butterflies and he's into chess problems. And then there's this wonderful, this is on page 292. I think this might be the first, I tried to scour carefully and make sure this was the first example of this in the book. I think it is. Uh, this is page 292. This is the first time this happens in the book. He's describing a chess problem. 
this is the paragraph that begins a brooklet of time. So he says, a brooklet of time in comparison to its frozen lake on the chessboard, my watch showed half past three. The season was May, mid-May, 1940. The day before, after months of soliciting and cursing, the emetic of a bribe had been administered to the right rat at the right office, which is really great, and had resulted finally in a visa de sortie, which in its turn conditioned the permission to cross the Atlantic. All of a sudden, I felt that with the completion of my chess problem, a whole period of my life had come to a satisfactory close. Everything around was very quiet faintly dimpled as it were by the quality of my relief i'm going to keep reading but what a wonderful sentence that is everything around was very quiet faintly dimpled as it were by the quality of my relief so we've all felt this way you look at your surroundings and they the, the textures of them feel different because of the quality of your mood i think that's wonderful so everything around was very quiet faintly dimpled as it were by the quality of my relief sitting in the next room were you and our child and I kind of audibly gasp. I think, wait, what? Who? You? Who is this you? The lamp on my table was bonneted with blue sugarloaf paper, an amusing military precaution, and the resulting light lent a lunar tinge to the voluted air heavy with tobacco smoke. I guess I kind of have the same question. And you've already given me a great answer. The courtship maybe is too private. The courtship is not public property. But the, a new question arises. Why directly address the you? Why not she and my son, you know, directly across from me was she and my son. Why the you? What does this do to you as a reader when you read it? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I I noticed earlier he started saying we in some of his chapters. And yeah. at, at first you assume that it's you as the reader. And then when you get to this point, he's like, you, you wonder if he was actually talking about his Oh wife. yeah, you might be right. So this might not be the first instance. There might be like a we fled this city. Yeah, that's right. You're right. Because this book, he talks a lot, a lot about a lot of intimate things. Yeah. So even though he doesn't want to get, disclose all of the intimate parts of his life, I wonder if there's an element of wanting to give intimacy to the reader in some form. Because he, he yeah. talks about these childhood memories with these vivid descriptions where you just have to go, wait a minute. Yeah, that's exactly right. I never would have <laughs> made that connection. I wonder if it's an attempt at reaching the reader in a different way. It's, which is, sounds like a paradox, right? Because we know that we're not being addressed. I mean, I think you're, I think you're totally right, but it's a weird and unexpected paradox that instead of addressing you and me, he's addressing somebody else that we don't know and thereby making you and me feel m- more involved in that relationship. So, in order to get more intimacy with the reader, he kind of ignores us and starts talking to somebody else. It's kind of like he lets us, he invites us to eavesdrop. You know, it's like, I'm going to quote unquote, pretend that I'm in a room with my wife and my son, but follow me, dear reader, peek through the window. And this is what you'll see, you know? So he's kind of like inviting us to look over his shoulder, but intimacy is absolutely the word this book isn't necessarily a historical book, although lots of historic stuff happens in it. It's a very intimate book and he wants to create a sense of intimacy. So for us as writers, as aspiring writers, using that second person address, the you, you and my son, instantly the room gets cozier. The, the bonds become tighter. You know, I just love it so much. I think it's so great. Yeah, it's, it's really beautiful. On, pay, on chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 15, 
Yeah, this corroborates our theory that the plot of this book is the passage of time or the attempt to regain lost memory. I mean, he, he includes a photograph of his wife and his son, this the passport photo. But look at the language that starts chapter 15. They are passing, post-haste, post-haste, the gliding years. The years are passing, my dear, and presently nobody will know what you and I know. Our <laughs> child is growing. It's just like, he just wants to get it down in writing. You know, like, nobody will remember us. This moment is about to be over. Are when he all... talks about not remembering the gardens and just remembering the sun. <laughs> Yeah. Covering their son anyway. But it's just like what you like what you said with you and your husband. There are things about that love that nobody else will ever know, you know? And it's not that you need them to know that, but there's just something both wonderful and sad about I don't know. I'm now like I've put the book down and I'm now like waxing annoyingly sappy, you know? But it's, there's just something so wonderful about this whole private interior life that is inaccessible and fleeting and precious and makes life worth living. But maybe another reason he doesn't write it down, because it's like what you were saying, like, how could this ever be put into words, you know? So all he has to say is you. And it's like, oh, I have one of those in my life. I get it. I know what you mean, you know? It's a good way, kind of letting the reader fill in the blanks with their so. own experience to try to mimic a feeling almost. like Because if you describe your own experience and relationship, your, your readers aren't going to feel that same intimacy. But if you just start saying you, they automatically put their own feelings into that space. I mean, don't you think, I mean, this, this deserves chewing on a little bit further because yeah. don't you think, I mean, we, you and I have praised this book and other students have praised this book on Learning Suite for the way that Nabokov uses all five senses to totally immerse you in a scene. Like he's not just recalling the memories or writing the memories down he's inhabiting them or he's living them again and he wants you to inhabit them again. So he does this by immersing you in all the sensory details. And I want to point to a passage or two where he does this. So on one hand, that's a proven technique, flood the reader with sensory details. So it sounds like a contradiction, what you're saying that, oh, there's this conspicuous lack of details. And all I'm going to say is you, and I'll trust that the reader can fill in his or her own details. These, both of these approaches seem to work, right? Both of them seem to be very compelling and magical. Very, if I was writing, I wouldn't know how to answer this. Is this, which of these categories should I employ now? Is this a flood the reader with details type situation? Or is this, is this a, better, is a better technique for this section to let the reader fill in his or her own details? How does a writer make these decisions? Do you have any ideas? There's one instance when he explains um he compares his writing versus his father's writing <gasps> i'm so glad let's go there this is on my list you want to read this or should i read it are you referring to the bit where he's like it's taking me two yeah. hours right? <laughs> so maybe well because he goes on before that to kind of explain the bit before is what he takes two hours to try to explain and then he kind of has that <laughs> that oh what's the word just like this excuse for himself. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, Should we start on page 177? Maybe let's start on the sentence he used to confess. Is that going back far enough, do you think? Yeah, I think so. This is page 177. He used to confess. So he's talking about his father. Nabokov is referring to his father. That's who he is. He used to confess that the creation of a story or poem, any story or poem, 
And all of our ears should be perked right now because he's telling us how to write stories and poems, which is what we want to know. He used to confess that the creation of a story or poem, any story or poem, was to him an incomprehensible, sorry, was to him as incomprehensible a miracle as the construction of an electric machine. On the other hand, he had no trouble at all in writing on juristic and political matters. He had a correct, albeit rather monotonous style, which today, despite all those old world metaphors of classical education and grandiloquent cliches of Russian journalism, has, at least to my jaded ear, an attractive gray dignity of its own, in extraordinary contrast to his colorful, quaint, often poetical, and sometimes ribald everyday utterances. The preserved drafts of some of his proclamations and editorials are penned in a copybook slanted, beautifully sleek, unbelievably regular hand, almost free of corrections, a purity, a certainty, a mind and matter co-function that I find amusing to compare to my own mousy hand and messy drafts to the massacrous revisions and rewritings and new revisions of the very lines in which I am taking two hours now to describe a two-minute run of his flawless handwriting. What did you want to say about this? Well, I, I, I wonder if he's been through several drafts and maybe he's tried to write the story of how he has met his wife, kind of the same way that he's described these other females. But then in the final draft, after reading it through, deciding to take it out and maybe that's yeah. not worth it. <laughs> and I think you could absolutely be right. We're, because we get a window into a writing process that seems very tortured and slow, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so it could be, yeah, that I love this. So Everybody in this class, pay attention. Sarah is absolutely right. The only way you might... so Okay, so let me try to backpedal and be as clear as I possibly can. What immediately becomes apparent is that it's very difficult to know what should be a scene in dialogue, you know, and what should just be summary or exposition. How do I know what technique to employ for what bit? And Sarah's answer is, well, maybe the only reason, maybe the only way that you can know is trial and error. Like maybe you try it one way and you hate it and you chuck it and you, you realize that it's garbage and you have to redo it the other way. So there might n be no easy way. You might not have a crystal ball that tells you beforehand, oh, don't waste time trying that. It's a dead end. You know, you might just have to embrace trial and error and write a scene in which you're falling in love with your future wife and then look at it and think, oh, no. I don't like this. Let me try this other way and think, oh yeah, that's working better. Trial and error, trial and error. And also, I think I want to use this section to point out that a great writer, I don't want to prescribe a, a certain writing habits or procedures. There are many, many, many great pieces of writing that come out fluently and effortlessly. But I think those types of authors or those types of texts, when they happen to us, should feel like the exceptions to the rule. You know what I mean? And we should feel lucky. It's taking me two hours. So Nabokov has confessed. And again, maybe we shouldn't take his word for it. Maybe it's kind of a lie. But let's, let's just pretend it's true. It's taken him two hours to write these five sentences. Two hours per five sentences. You know, like, I want to inspire everybody listening to embrace that level of patience and hard work. I myself failed to have this level of patience and this kind of work ethic regularly. But I do think it's something that can some often separate a great writer from an aspiring one. You know what I mean? Like, no, slow down, 
get it right. This isn't right. I'm going to redo it. Let's get it right. I totally agree. And I mean, I, I think of Decopia and <laughs> Erasmus oh, yeah, that's and right. things like that. Um, well, t- but, explain what that is. Elaborate. Remind so, people what that is. Let's see. If I get this wrong, correct me. I'm um, sure you won't. <laughs> but Erasmus was a theorist. He, he had a couple of roles. But one of the things that he would teach in schools or one, one um, practice that he ascribed to was sitting down and finding one sentence. Mm. Um, I think the original sentence that is always used is just your letter pleased me greatly. Yeah. And then just finding hundreds of other ways to say that same sentence until you find the perfect one. I think in works of prose and um, things that you're trying to create as art, this is really important. But like in essays in school, I'm talking as a student, don't, probably you don't want to spend two hours on two <laughs> five sentences. Okay, this is great. I mean, time management comes into play here. There are some pieces of writing that you simply can't pour yeah. your whole life and soul into. But I figure if it's your passion project, if it's the story of your life, if, if you're writing a book called Speak Memory and you're writing to regain your lost childhood, you owe it to that childhood to get it right, to get the words right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I love that example. And again, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation because that never would have occurred to me. But you're absolutely right. Erasmus would sadistically uh, force his <laughs> students to rewrite that sentence. Your letter pleased me greatly a hundred times, a hundred versions. So, you know, like I was mightily pleased by your letter. My heart soared when I saw your letter, you know, on and on and on a hundred different ways. And this just is is meant to illustrate that the first version that comes to your mind isn't necessarily the ideal one. You have to force your way into better phrasings. So let's look at the fruit of some of Nabokov's labors. I love this bit. So if you force yourself to spend two hours writing five sentences, like two hours of hard work, because we can all spend two hours writing five sentences if we have Facebook open and we're eating a sandwich and you know what I mean? But like two hours of concentrated effort, the chances dramatically increase that you'll be able to write sentences like this bottom of page 270 he's just like you know in cambridge in a boat on this little like canal looking at the water and he writes this in its turn the water cast a patch of lacy light on the shore of the intrados under which one's gliding craft passed now and then shed by a blossoming tree a petal would come down 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 and with the odd feeling of seeing something neither worshiper nor casual spectator ought to see one would manage to glimpse its reflection which swiftly more swiftly than the petal fell rose to meet it and for the fraction of a second one feared that the trick would not work that the blessed oil would not catch fire that the reflection might miss and the petal float away alone but every time the delicate union did take place with the magic precision of a poet's word meeting halfway his or a reader's recollection. I think, oh my goodness, I'll never write something that good. Seeing the reflection of the petal and the petal rise and meet halfway, and you think, are they going to meet? Maybe they won't, and they do. How did he do this, Sarah? I mean, I don't know. How did he do it? Where does this oil come from? That the blessed oil would not catch fire? What is that all about? Suddenly it's like from the book of Revelation or something. We're reading something apocalyptic or it's really weird. 
It's really pretty though. <laughs> it's so beautiful. That's all I want to say about it. That's good. It's just so beautiful. I mean, we could say like he's using like rhetorical devices, like repeating that the beginning of certain clauses, like one feared that the trick would not work, that the blessed oil would not catch fire, that the reflection might miss, which kind of builds up this wonderful crescendo. So there are tricks like this you can learn if you read passionately and absorb bits that you love, I think. Well, and he compares things, well, like you said with the oil, he compares things and makes these descriptions that you wouldn't think of, <laughs> but it seems so obvious. Yeah, that's right. Like I would never imagine to connect that image with, oh yeah, that's like what happens in your brain when you find the perfect word for a poem you're writing. While, while we're talking about how to write poetry, I have a note to myself, page 218. I thought I would read this as a kind of foreshadowing of the poetry unit. And we don't really have to comment on this. I mean, unless you have anything to say about it. This is page 218. Yeah. He says, Vivian Bloodmark, a philosophical friend of mine in later years, used to say that while the scientist sees everything that happens in one point of space, the poet feels everything that happens in one point of time. Lost in thought, he taps his knee with his wand-like pencil, and at the same instant, a car, New York license plate, passes along the road, a child bangs the screen door of a neighboring porch, an old man yawns in a misty Turkestan orchard, a granule of cinder-gray sand is rolled by the wind on Venus, a, a doctor, Jacques Hirsch, in Grenoble puts on his reading glasses, and trillions of other such trifles occur, all forming an instantaneous and transparent organism of events, of which the poet, sitting in a lawn chair at Ithaca, New York, is the nucleus. All I want to do in response to that is, like, chuckle in admiration. Any thoughts about this? It's funny. He really uses rhythm to his advantage, too, kind of like a poet would, oh. so that you can feel the scene because he keeps it going. And it feels like you're zooming to all these different places, and it really does have a very poetic feel to it, not just because of the words, but anyway, the rhythm. This is this is great. The rhythm of a this, a that, a this, a that. It's like the steady drumbeat that gets louder and louder and louder until we feel like, oh, this is a song. Yeah, we're in a kind of lyric poem or something. That's really great. How wonderful is that cinder gray sand rolled by the wind on Venus? <laughs> you know? I don't know what the lesson about poetry is that he's trying to teach us. That that poets... Well, I think one of the lessons is that poets need to focus on little bits of sand as opposed to like love or grief you know the poets like new york license plate in parentheses you know that he notices poets notice the concrete and the everyday and the physical and they also notice yeah they just pay attention to detail that's good poetry advice pay attention to detail oh well two more things maybe what did you think about the butterflies i feel like this is a kind of readers i don't know they they whenever i poll readers on this topic they love it or hate it yeah, love it because it's some of maybe his most passionate and imagistic writing. Or they hate it because it's like, oh, more bugs? Who cares about these stupid bugs? Where do you stand on this butterfly question? Did you like these bits? Honestly, I did. I can't say that I didn't skim them <laughs> just because I don't know some of the names and things like that. I mean, he does but, get very technical. Yes. <laughs> like, what, what is the name of this thing? Yeah. Um, he... 
kind of uses it like an anchor throughout his entire narrative. And I appreciated that anchor Um, just no matter at what point in the spiral we were, there was usually some reference to butterflies or or I appreciated it. So it's like a motif. I I think the spiral, you're absolutely smart to pick up on the spiral. So spiral is different than a line or a circle because you make progress in space. Like you move from point A to point B, but also you retrace certain certain of the same coordinates on the map, right? Yeah, so it's like butterflies at age eight, butterflies at age 10, butterflies at age 16, yeah? It's like, I have I have caught butterflies in this place, in this outfit. And in fact, there's this one, uh, maybe readers missed it, one Wasatch shout out, right? Yeah. Go, go to page 136. Uh, I won't spend a lot of time here because we have to wrap up and there's a, one more thing I want to read, but he he's a little boy dr- reading filling his long solitary hours by reading all these butterfly books. And his goal as a little boy is to put his name into these books as a discoverer of a new species of butterfly, which I find such a charming aspiration for a little boy. And he says this, and my pied imagination ostensibly and almost grotesquely groveling to my desire kept providing me with hallucinatory samples of small print. So he's imagining his name in this book, right? The only specimen so far known, the only specimen known of this was taken by a Russian schoolboy, right? Or by a young Russian collector, his claim to imaginary stardom. So it's not like a rock star. He's not imagining himself on stage. He just wants to be mentioned in a book about butterflies. And then he says this, and then 30 years later, that blessed black night in the Wasatch range, period, right? Like just to announce this like mystery, like it happened one day, 30 years later on this blessed black night in Utah, I found, you know, my dreams came true and I found this butterfly. Very adorable. Okay, so uh, the last thing I want to read, he's very good at, and I, I mean, you pick up on this too with the butterflies. It's kind of motif of growth, right? He's very good at using images. I don't want to use the word symbols, but that's kind of what they end up being. But the reason I don't want to use the word symbols is because he doesn't beat their symbolism to death. And my favorite instance of this is near the very end. It's another childhood memory. This is page 308. I think this is an image. It's a memory of a physical thing. It's actually happening, right? But it's describing, it, it, it's an analogy. It's such a good physical analogy for the process of writing a book like this about his memory. So it's in the middle of, I'll start on the middle of page 308. And among the candy-like blobs of sea-licked glass, lemon, cherry, peppermint, and the banded pebbles and the little fluted shells with lustered insides, sometimes small bits of pottery, still beautiful in glaze and color, turned up. They were brought to you or me for inspection. I guess he means by his son, his little boy, was beachcombing. They were brought to you and me for inspection. And if they had indigo chevrons or bands of leaf ornament or any kind of gay emblemata, and were judged precious, down they went with the clink into the toy pail. And if not, a plop and a flash marked their return to the sea. I do not doubt that among those slightly convex chips of myoka ware found found by our child, there was one whose border of scroll work fitted exactly and continued the pattern of a fragment I had found in 1903 on the same shore, and that the two tallied with a third my mother had found on that Mentone beach in 1882, and with a fourth piece of the same pottery that had been found by her mother a hundred years ago, and so on, until this assortment of parts, if all had been preserved, might have been put together to make the complete 
the absolutely complete bowl, broken by some Italian child, God knows where and when, and now mended by these rivets of bronze. I think, wow, right? Absolutely wow. It's breathtaking, right? Oh, it's all breathtaking. I love the way he puts his mother in there because his mom is so important throughout the entire thing. So sad. Just, uh, anyway, like you say, it's just, it's beautiful. And, and, and it doesn't, it's not just a physical description of just generation to generation, but there's a nostalgia involved yeah. as well. Yeah. No, you're totally right. It's like this physical and emotional or physical and abstract, concrete and abstract. So he, he wants to embody this abstract idea of, I refuse to let time beat me, right? Or I refuse to let my mother be truly dead. So how do I do that? I want to embody it in time. So to summarize, look at what you can do, aspiring writers, if you demand excellence of yourself, right? Two hours per five sentences, embody abstract ideas in the concrete. What else would we have to say in summary? Don't underestimate the power of the mundane. Little chips of pottery, you know, can become suddenly precious to you. Well, I mean, like in David Foster Wallace, just seeing everything. Seeing everything, totally seeing everything. So mm -hmm. these little chips of pottery with like markings on them, like little chevrons or yeah, see everything, absolutely see everything and find the right word. Yeah, and the right descriptions and comparisons. Yeah, and the, that's right. The right compare. Be aim to be surprising in your in your comparisons. Well, this has been great, Sarah. I hope I haven't like done too much rambling. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it wasn't too annoying or. No, I what? really enjoyed this. It was really great. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Thank you Bye. so much. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Today's writing prompt is based on that passage when Nabokov sees that petal from a blossoming tree fall into the water. It's one of my favorite moments in this book, first of all because of how well it's written, and also because of how much detail he lavishes on an object or event in nature that, yes, is beautiful, but we might not think to spend a whole paragraph describing. So what I want you to try, if you'd like, remember these are just for fun and optional, is go to a public place like a park or a field and pick a small piece of nature. So don't choose something grand and obviously gorgeous and scenic like a mountain or a seascape or some kind of dramatic canyon. Just pick something small, something that you could actually hold in your hand, a leaf, a stem, a rock, a bug, a ray of light, something very small, physically small, and start a free write and the goal of this free write eventually will be to compose an entire long finished paragraph about this object. So the goal of this writing prompt is to kind of look at something small and linger on it for a long time. Aim for a long paragraph of writing. Describe it in minute detail. How does it move? What color is it? And then a few seconds later, what has changed? Is it a different, slightly different color? Slightly different position? What emotions or sensations or ideas does this small object inspire in you or represent for you or seem to be imbued with? Is there a way to work those ideas into the emotions of this object while still being grounded in the physical details of this object? Try to look at this object from all sides, the front, the back, the top, the bottom. The first, the first run through of this writing prompt will be a kind of free write nothing too formal or final or polished. But as you keep revising this and tinkering with it, think about Nabokov's use of language 
Rarely will, I think, the first word be the best word. Nabokov's one of those writers who seems to be working with one of those 150-pack mega-set box of crayons with all kinds of colors that you've never heard of, and the rest of us are using, you know, those very cheap, basic 12-color boxes of crayons. The more colors or words you have at your disposal, the more vivid and dazzling your writing or your picture will be. So as you polish this writing prompt into a complete paragraph or a complete poem or a scene in a book or a scene in an essay, don't settle for the words that first come to your mind. Seek words and word pairings that might stretch you a little bit and give texture and dimension to this object that you're describing. And following on the theme of lost childhoods and lost homes, I'd like to read this short poem by Philip Larkin called Home is So Sad. Home is so sad. It stays as it was left, shaped to the comfort of the last to go, as if to win them back. Instead, bereft of anyone to please, it withers so, having no heart to put aside the theft and turn again to what it started as, a joyous shot at how things ought to be, long fallen wide. You can see how it was. Look at the pictures and the cutlery, the music in the piano stool, that vase. So that's all for now. Keep your eyes out for the next recording in which I'll be chatting with a couple of you about Ernest Hemingway's short novel, The Old Man and the Sea, which I'm really looking forward to. And in the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to be a great writer. <laughs>